Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Steinford, and today we start to wrap up our series of hot topic compilations that have been touching on the various pillars of toughness. So far, we've heard from multiple elite performers on how they approach several aspects of their mental game, like mental strength, emotional endurance, cognitive flexibility, psychological speed. And here, though, today is where the rubber really meets the road, particularly because a couple of them come together to make this one. Today, we're talking about personal power, which is a combination of mental strength and psychological speed but really is talking about taking action. You can handle your emotions all you want, but this is really about committed action, putting a plan in place and actually following through. I wanted it so bad that literally every single thing that I felt achieved my goal, I said yes to, and every single thing that did it, I said no. And it was just like a clear line. Mohammed on the line, and it's a new world record. Fourth and Shaquille fade away. This one barely beat the buzzer to win it. When I said to myself this, this always gives me this my key turn. It could be worse. It could be worse. As I look around where I live and all I do, I say, shut up and stop complaining and have it. Shut your butt up and just shut it up. This ability to get yourself to do the shit you don't like doing. That skill allowed me to achieve everything else going forward. Our first guest needs no introduction. Jordan Belfort, who is better known as the Wolf of Wall Street, is not shy when it comes to the spotlight. The former stockbroker had the power to turn his personal tragedy and struggles into a story of success, becoming a well-known author, speaker, and entrepreneur. He's joined by Justin Kenner, the CEO of esports brand GameSquare, who just like Jordan, had to totally commit to his actions to achieve his vision. It's just like, you know, when you're in jail, you're like the ultimate loser. You are. You're a loser because you've lost in the game of life. You've lost. You did whatever it is. You lost. You temporarily lost. And now you're locked up with no civil rights. It's terrible. It's like you can't imagine what it does to someone's psychology because it's like there's just no way around. You can't rationalize your way out of it. You are a loser. And, you know, and the world goes on without you. And I think what happens to a lot of people is they go into jail and they allow that to become who they are. They allow the experience to define them versus for me, what I did is I used it to propel me to greatness. Like, a, And it might sound odd, and but you take the hand that you're dealt or you dealt yourself and you move forward. So, you know, for me, I remember there was this moment in jail when, you know, Tommy Chong, who was my bunkmate, right? And he said to me, you have to write a book because I was telling him stories at night and he was rolling on the floor. He goes, I thought they were bullshit. <laughs> and my wife Googled you and it's all true. I can't believe you lived this life. And, I, and ironically, I didn't think my life was that crazy because it was my life. And I'm like, really? You think my life is it's like, I'm Tommy Chong and I think your life is crazy, right? <laughs> and the, and, right? And, and in that moment, I made a decision, right? To start, I said, all right, I'm going to give it a shot, right? And then it, it was just a terrible struggle. I was a terrible writer. I couldn't write anything well. It was really boring to read my writing. And then I had this second incident where I stumbled upon this book. Oh my God, this is how I want to write. And I literally taught myself to write, like word by word, taught myself to become a, uh, what I think most people say is a very, very good writer now, okay? In terms of like, you know, I can write as good as pretty much most great authors, right? Not like the best of the best, but I'm up there, okay? I really, and I believe that in my heart. I was walking around the prison for about a year and a half 
with my books and writing under my arm. And I kept saying to myself, everyone else here is wasting their time. I'm not. I'm going to come out. I want to show everybody here. And I was running up. It was a strategy I was doing on purpose. It was I was doing it to myself, knowing I'm kidding myself. I'm saying I'm going to write a bestseller. I'm going to take this whole thing. They don't know. They're wasting their time. They do nothing. I'm doing something. I'm improving myself. So I used that time away to improve myself, to give myself. I exited prison with a skill set that few people have. I don't have ghostwriters when I write my books. I write my books myself. All right. So so that skill I developed. I exited a much more powerful person in terms of the ability to communicate. I always had the natural born ability to speak, but not write. That skill allowed me to achieve everything else going forward. Now, what have I been successful in? Yeah, I would have been successful anyway. It was in my nature. But that skill, it was that moment in jail, not allowing to say, I am the mistake of my past. That's the, the big one. I'm not the mistake or the mistakes of my past. I'm the resources and capabilities that I glean from my past mistakes. So every mistake you make, if you can look at it that way, it, you grow stronger. You learn from it. You develop muscle. So I exited jail now with a ability to write really well. Ethics now really back in line, knowing I'll never do something wrong again like that. I learned my lessons on that, that regard. And I set myself up for massive success. And then I came out and wrote the book the first year, working 18 hours a day, hiding away in a small little apartment. And the rest is history. So like you said, people say, oh, you work for this team and that team. And they don't know what the blood, sweat and tears. Well, the blood, sweat and tears that went into my thing was literally countless hours of teaching myself to write and then writing that book and going to jail. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's an amazing turning shit to gold kind of story, right? It's a, the alchemy of, of life, being able to take some shit stuff and make good stuff out of it. Um, the importance was on purpose, though. It was on purpose. It wasn't an accident. Yeah, so I'm curious about that because one of the, I know we're starting to get up against time, but one of the things that we talk about here, as well as being able to find an advisor, like formally potentially for your inner game, sometimes it comes through the through heroes that we have, either people that we see, we read their shit, like you found this book that kind of shaped how you wanted to talk in writing, or we have actual advisors in business or a coach or a parent or something like that, right? Was it your deliberate intent in jail to flip the shit and turn it into gold? Obviously, people want to do that, right? But you were deliberate and specific and crafted about it. Like, did you have someone who pointed you in the direction besides Mr. Chong? Oh. Well, so I, I'll say this, that Tommy Chong probably told every single, Tommy's a really nice guy. He was not one to keep to himself. He gave advice to a lot of people. He probably told 30 people that to go write books. I'm the only one that actually taught themselves to write and wrote a book or everyone else. Like, so I think the difference, is, I, I always say this, so much of it is about like this ability to get yourself to do the shit you don't like doing. And a lot of people, they just cannot get themselves. They don't have that. It's discipline to do all the stuff that happens before the glory. Do you have and, a trick for that? How do you make yourself well, do that? The tr Well, it's not a trick. What it is, it's a set of values and beliefs I have about success. I fully believe that's an integral part of success. Like in my mind, I don't see any other way. So like if I want to achieve success, I have a firm belief that success requires 
preparation, hard work. The easiest money you'll ever make is when you're working the least hard. You make you make most of your money when you're hardly even working. All of the hard work goes into before you become successful. And this is what people don't get. Like they feel like, oh, is it overnight success? Yeah, after six years of hard work, right? So it's like once you're succeeding, making money is, I made the most money hardly working. You know, oh, five, 20 million, there, five, that happens now. It's like unbelievable. I can print money now after years and years and years of blood, sweat, and tears, right? Mm -hmm. But I enjoy that. Like in my mind, I've linked up like to me, I believe that part of the journey is the hard work and like the not succeeding. So like when I'm not getting what I want, I'm not getting I'm not negative about it. I'm like it's I'm, I'm one step closer. It's like it's like not a, it's not a game. It's like it's a belief I have a tacit belief that this is how you succeed in life. You do these things and you will succeed. And what I don't do. And this is a big problem for many people, many of your listeners, I bet, is that many people don't truly believe they have what it takes to succeed. It's not fear of failure that stops them. It's that when they play the movie out, they're like, I don't know if I really are going to succeed. So why should I do all the hard work? Like, I really believe that if I do the hard work, I'm going to succeed. doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I believe it. And when you believe that, your brain will say, all right, well, I might as well do the hard work because I'm going to get the payoff. Yeah. Uh, JK, flipping to you on that point, how much of your approach to, like, like when I first heard about some of your moves, you, I think you mentioned it earlier, like your move from, Face Clan to Game Square a little bit, but even from uh, the normal finance and advertising into Face Clan, like they're a little bit left turns and unexpected, right? And particularly even the business direction of Face Clan and the emphasis on that brand side that Jordan mentioned, yeah. it's a little bit of a different approach, right? How do you how do you get to the point where that seems to where you decide I'm going to swim against the grain versus we're going to do what everyone else is doing? Like that seems to be a bit of a trend of yours. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I, I mean, I think that for me, it's an interesting one, right? Like everybody always talks about five-year goals and 10-year goals and where you're going to be and, and all these types of things. My whole thing has always been do the work, get myself in a position that I can achieve. And I have this, and I call it ruthless pursuit of short-term goals. And that's what I'm about is a ruthless pursuit of short-term goals opens up doors to, to bigger and better opportunities in the future. That's not to say that, you know, for example, I'll, I'll talk about Game Square. I have a vision for where Game Square is going to be in five years' time. Now, are we going to be there? Maybe, maybe not. Will, will we achieve the things I want to achieve? I'd like to think so, but is it going to look exactly like what I think it's going to look like? It's not going to, right? There's variables and you need to, even what Jordan was talking to before, as strong as you are in your convictions, you need to have the ability to pivot, right? And my whole thing has really been about backing myself in and having ruthless pursuit of short-term goals. So I try to not overthink things too much. I have a, a vision for where I want to get to. But if I do everything really well in the short term, the medium term takes care of itself. And that's kind of my attitude. And so, you know, from from Phase Clan and even moving from Phase Clan into Game Square. I, I did that and I gave, you know, FaZe Clan three years of ruthless pursuit of short-term goals that I think has been, you know, I'm very proud of and, and has been a contributor to the success and growth of FaZe Clan and where they sit today. And, you know, for me personally, I had an opportunity to come over and, you know, at 36 years of age, be the CEO of a publicly listed company. And, you know, for me, that was, that was exactly that. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not in this to, uh, 
you know, be at a basketball game with a celebrity or in this to, you know, walk around and talk about how amazing FaZe Clan is. I'm in this to, to actually grow a business and build value for those who believe in me. And I had the opportunity to do that and come over to Game Square. And, and you know, to be frank, it's been an incredible experience thus far and we've got a lot of growth ahead of us. It's amazing how a relentless pursuit of their goals impacted their life for both of these guys. And if they weren't willing to go through the tough stuff, we probably wouldn't be talking about them right now. Speaking of well-known figures who went through some tough things, Shaquille O'Neal always comes to mind when I think about elite performers that, through their commitment and dedication, flicked the game in their favor. Specifically, if we think about his career now as a business mogul rather than as a basketball player, Shaq revealed how sticking to his vision and following through on his plans was the best path towards making the most successful moves he's made. I know I'm not an expert. I tell a lot of funny, inspirational stories. Those stories were told to me, and I just try to lift, lift the person's spirit. But if that doesn't work, I'll, I'll have to get him help. My spirit never gets below 50% because I'm not allowed to. My father won't allow it. And then, two, I just try to plug all my formulas. I right, don't worry about the problem, worry about the solution. Man up. Stop being a punk. And then this right here is, is I always say to myself this, this always gets me, this is my key turn. It could be worse. It could be worse. As I look around where I live and all I do, I say, shut up and stop complaining and handle it. Shut your butt up and just shut it up. Because it could be worse. Because Larry and I, we, we know some people that used to hang out with us and spend big money. Now they don't have $2 to their names which is sad. So before I start, uh, uh, it could be worse. I'd be like, you know what, it could be worse. Why don't you stop worrying about your problems and, and, go, and go help somebody else? So now my mission is every time I go to a big time store, I'm helping somebody else. Well, the other day I was in Best Buy and I seen a family, beautiful family, guy, husband, two daughters. They had a 45 inch TV and they had a whole bunch of coupons, but they were so happy. Oh man. Netflix, Hulu, they were happy. But I'm not letting that ride because I'm the dummy that when the 75 inches first come out, I buy them, they're 5000 But now that's $700 for 75 inches. I'm not letting this family walk out with no, with no 45 inch. And God already knew what I was going to do before I got there. Excuse me, sir, what kind of car you drive? I got an F-150. Perfect. Put that little 45 down and get your 75. What? So go get a 75. No, no, I can't. Brother, I'm telling you, go get a 75, I'll take care of it. So making them happy makes me happy. Now I'm like this when I go home. So the problem, the little problem that I had, I throw some of that happy juice on it, and it starts to sink up. So I should go away. And then I can go back to you know, okay, what happened? Then, okay, I come this happy. So now that I'm happy, it changes my it changes the fluids in my body and my brain, and now I can deal with the problem that I'm dealing with. So whenever I get down, I just say shut up. Because it could be worse. Man up, figure it out. Because that's what my father would say. Shut up and figure it out. Why did you yeah. miss 23 toes? I don't know. Shut the hell up. I told you how she was five years old. Figure it out. And he did, you know, he just hang up. You can do it. You had a pump. And he just hang up. So it's a great example there of you, know, you talk about it. Obviously, we all have people who we remember vividly their words. That You've mentioned a few specific ones from your dad. But being able to take that and turn it into a you know, flip it not only to help you get through a problem, but also to help other people. You mentioned you spread your happy juice on it with your words there, where it actually it does change your physiology, and you're able to go into the next situation better. 
Let's let's pivot now to your business stuff that you've moved on to after you, your game. I know we're coming up on finishing the show, but I, it would be selling you short to not mention that your total net worth, forget about the fact that you earned a lot of money playing basketball, you've more than tripled that since, right? You've got a, a number of investments, a number of franchises, a number of startups. You're kind of a self-made entrepreneur in that sense. How much of your business, your approach to business is partly your competitive juices, like you want to win. So I want to make this deal to win. I want to be the best. I want to be the smartest. I want to be on the edge here, right? I want to dominate that area just like I've dominated basketball. Or how much of it is I want to actually make a difference here in this community. I'm trying to win this deal so that I can impact people's lives. It would be the second part, but later on in life. I am a good investment, a good businessman out of fear. Hmm. 73% of all professional athletes five years after they're playing have zero, big zero. Is that because you actually went there? Like you lost your money or you just saw other people? Oh, no. Every time an athlete did something crazy, I would get disciplined for them. So it's the reason why I don't do drugs. You ever heard of Lynn Bias? Yep. So Lynn Bias passed away. My father comes in the house furious. Tears, uniform ripped off grabs me, throwing me around the house. It was a, probably the worst discipline I got. said, if you ever do coke, I'll kill you. I'm young at the time, I'm like, Dad, we drink Pepsi. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about drugs. I think he disciplined me. He sat me down, and we watched the story, and we cried together. My father was like, this kid, he's going to be the best kid, and he messed up. Never doing drugs. One time, he caught me sipping beer. Oh, you want to be a man? Drink the beer. Drunk a 12-pack to the head. I hate beer. Right? Drinking and driving, doing drugs, never do that. So, you know, every time an athlete would lose his money, he'd just be mad at me. So I said, you know what? i got to figure ways to, to at least have a little bit of money. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a genius. Like, you know, they always say, invest, invest, invest. You've got to be educated to know what you're investing in. And then, so, like, when I first got into the game, I only had two rules. If it's too good to be true, stay away from it. If it's safe, get into it. So I met with a guy, uh, Larry knows him, Lester Nispel, Jewish fella. He said, hey, man, government bonds, 6 7%, some annuities, so when you stop playing, you have this much coming in. That was the first thing I did. So, all right. So now I meet Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson says, oh, it's good to be famous, but you want to start owning stuff. I didn't pay him no mind. So one day I'm walking by and I see a Magic Johnson 24-hour fitness. I'm like, and then I see a Magic Johnson Starbucks. I'm like, and I see a Magic Johnson theater. I'm like, but this was around the time I was getting my master's. And you know, first book I got was Dummy's Guide to Starting Your Own Business. I'm like, damn, this is how they do it? And my favorite chapter is joint ventureship. I'm like, hmm, okay, this is how I could still do what I do, but I own some stuff. Like, boom, boom, boom. Like, if I want to get a podcast, and uh, I'm going to call my guy Patty, get with his company, I'll put the money up. Boom, 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 boom. Shaq and Patty and Shaq. Patty Shaq. Podcast, right? So once I mastered the joint venture shit, it was easy for me to get into business. So first thing I did was start a shoe line. I do a joint venture. I don't want to own shoes, so I did a deal with Reebok. I did that. I said, okay, we got this. I uh, did a joint venture with Jive. Uh, records. So that was a way for me to own things, still do business and have the knowledge of how the business is supposed to be ran and still play basketball. 
because I did research on like, how this guy mess up in the restaurant? Is he actually trying to run a restaurant and like use a restaurateur? I said, no. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go to Vegas. I'm going to meet a couple guys. Hey, man, you want to do a restaurant together? Yeah. Oh, my restaurant is successful. Hey, man, we got another space. Let's do another restaurant. Hey, man, the Paris Hotel love us. We got the restaurant here. We got the one bottom. There's a space. Oh, let's do a club. So, like, it's just, but it's all about joint venturesship. So, Larry knows my partners. I trust them. They trust me. I'm the money guy. And we do business together. Because it, it was all done out of fear, not because I'm some business expert. Like, I don't want to be one of those guys that have nothing. I need something. So, you know, I got a whole bunch of money just sitting here not doing nothing. I just take a little piece and see what it does. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Because every time I try to get with the get rich quick stuff, I lost my ass. And then when I became older and started becoming wiser, really getting into investments, because I go to all the tech summits in Vegas. I'm a geek. I want people to know that I'm a geek. I need, I love technology. So I'm watching Jeff Bezos speak about him starting Amazon. I was like, man, if he pulls this off, it's going to be brilliant. But he said, I invest in things that's going to change people's lives. And Amazon is going to change people's lives. And once I heard that, now when I invest, it's all about that. It's all about that. So I've been lucky. I don't want to act like I'm an expert. And the best thing, you know why I love smart people, Patty? Why is that, Shaq? Because they all work for me. <laughs> I don't forget I got people smarter than me. Eisenhower said the greatest leaders are the ones smarter enough to hire people smarter than you know. So you know, there's been a lot of guys that have been in my position to act like they know what they're doing. You don't know. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. It is about just kind of having that perseverance and that ability to kind of keep going when things do get tough, the the showing up every day, even when things get hard, just your commitment to it. Now, if there's one thing that we learn in the first season of this show, it's that some people are willing to run towards the fire, or in some cases, excuse the pun, towards the hurdles. We heard from track and field legend Delilah Muhammad how saying yes to her inner voice and then also to everything that led towards that goal, even if it was hard, that prepared her to go all in on her dreams, overcoming injuries and other setbacks and eventually writing her name in history as the first American woman to win Olympic gold in the 400 meter hurdles. I think it is about just kind of having that perseverance and that ability to kind of keep going when things do get tough, that kind of ability to um, really put things into perspective and um, the ability to not only put things into perspective, but to put things in perspective to the ability to be able to reach your goals. Um, to kind of just compartmentalize exactly what you're doing, what what's holding you back, what's that fear, and being able to really distinguish what that is and um, to be able to kind of really push through it. So for me, it's just about being that, you know, having that perseverance, the, the showing up every day, even when things get hard. Um, yeah, and just your commitment to it. We, we asked this of a lot of our guests. So tell us what's what's a, a key trait of people in your area. Obviously, to become an Olympic champion, uh, to even make the Olympics, you need to have a high level of motivation. But beyond that, what, what do you think is something that makes an Olympic champion to be able to deal with everything, all the hurdles along the way to eventually getting on that podium? 
Well, if you ask a famous coach, Brooks, he says you have to be a little bit crazy. And I, <laughs> and I, and I think I agree, but you know, ultimately I think it's the ability to just compartmentalize. I think so much we look at the bigger picture and we look at the end goal, but it's the ability really to just do it day by day to kind of take those necessary things that you need to do on a daily basis. It's waking up right. It's being able to, to, to do your workout in that moment, just being focusing on the little goals and not so much. Yes, you always want to have that bigger picture be in your mind and you know what you're working towards, but your everyday life should just focus on the little things and the little things that you can accomplish and the little goals that you can set every single day. Love it. I, this, this, I think it's setting me up for this question. That So shout out to our uh, mutual friend, Chris Holland. He suggested I ask you this. Now, I have no idea where this is leading, but I think this might be tied into what you just said about going away from the bigger picture and just focusing on what's right in front of you. He said, make sure you ask her about what her coach, what her track coach told her um, when she broke the world record the last time, just before you stepped onto the track. Oh, man. (laughs) Now I feel like he's putting me on the spot. Oh, my God. Chris, you've set me up. You know, I think, okay, the, before I broke the world record, what did my coach say? You know, I, I, I did, I don't actually remember. I'm not even going <laughs> to remember. Because <laughs> we have so many moments between us that um, we just have so many moments and we talk about it constantly. But um, I did speak about this, uh, the general idea of our relationship that I feel is so special. And I think that's just the belief that I feel like he has in me and that that trust that I have in him and for me I think before breaking that world record for the first time I remember just kind of looking at him and looking for his reassurance and it's just like he gave it to me without question it wasn't it wasn't even anything he said but more just the look and it was just like I knew I can do it and that's just all I needed and it's just like we have that relationship where we can feed off each other but we bounce out we just give each other like what the other person needs and I and I and I love that about us that coach athlete relationship. And yeah, for me, it's always just, I think for me, it's just enabled to kind of reach like these crazy, crazy goals. Sometimes you have to let go. And I think that's, that sounds weird because sometimes it seems like you want to be all in, but sometimes it's like letting go, giving another person. Um, so it's not, that, not so much control, but letting another person kind of lead you and to kind of to reach even bigger goals that you thought wasn't even possible. And I feel like that's kind of our relationship has been kind of letting someone else lead or just kind of playing your role. I'm, I'm the runner. He's the coach. And yeah, it just, it works for us and just kind of really giving me that reassurance. I guess I needed in that moment. That's, that's an, an awesome example of um, one of the common things that comes up here. People look at people at, at, famous people or successful people like yourself, some of the other celebrities or superstars we've had on the show. And they're like, oh, wow, Delilah Muhammad, she must be like a mate. She's different than us, right? And you are a little bit. Like you said, you got to be a little crazy to do what you do. But, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, he must be different. Yeah, he's seven foot and 300 pounds. And there's like people are different. But there's one common theme is that no one ever gets to where they're getting with by themselves. There's always people who have helped them, who have supported them, who sometimes lead them when they need leading or direction or guidance or reassurance. How did you discover that? Like at what point did you and that coach meet or was there someone like that previously as well? Like, has that been a consistent theme for you? 
you know, it hasn't. I think for me in college, that wasn't that wasn't the case. I wasn't. Um, it's like you're kind of trying to do every single part, you know, and I, I'm a true believer that you need a team around you. That's why, you know, our mutual friend, I'm so happy to have found him in my life. You know, it's just that mutual. Um, I mean, that team that allows us to be able to do what we do. I think in college, I was trying to play every single role. And, you know, that could be a factor. Um, when I found my current coach, it was in 2016. Um, so a couple years, I had already graduated from college. Um, it was an Olympic year. And I remember just thinking like, my, I, had a, I had a great, you know, couple years a couple years back as a professional athlete, but I, I was kind of falling off and I wasn't really kind of where I wanted to be. And for me, it was kind of making that coaching um, change. And it was Olympic year also. And I remember just thinking, I want to win gold. That was kind of like the mindset where I was going with it. And it was just kind of like, how do I do it? And I couldn't come up with an answer. Mm. So it was just, I think it was in that moment where it was just like, I know I need to kind of change coaches, but what's next after that? I know I need to do this, but all the things on the track, I just didn't have any answers anymore. For me, especially coming from being a really good runner as a child, it's just like, I felt like I'm like, I did everything. I, I do everything I can do on the track and it, it's not enough. At least that's how my mindset was at the time. And so it was just like, what else can I do? And I, I didn't have someone who knew. Yeah. And I needed someone who knew. And it was just like, let me trust this person knows. And yeah. for that, it was just kind of like, I'm going to say yes to every single thing that he tells me to do. And I literally <laughs> did that. I think from it working out so well um, in 15 and 2014, I wasn't ranked in the world. In 2016, I won Olympic gold. So I think from it being such a drastic change in my life, such having such drastic success, it was just like, this is the formula. Yeah, it worked. That is, that is drastic. Can you like, okay, I'm going to dig in here in a selfish way because I'm currently into in my role um, with a, an international football uh, federation. I'm currently interviewing for a new head coach for the national team to take them to the Olympics when they go. And uh, one of the questions that we've been asking that we really don't get great answers from people who've never been there is, what does it take to win an Olympic gold medal? You know, this is at a team level, right? There's a lot of things that go into it. But you just described, like, you went from unranked to gold medalist at the Olympics in a year or in two years. But, wow, that's crazy. So what, what would you say if I asked you that question and you were interviewing, like, what's your answer? What does it take to win a gold medal at the Olympics? Yeah, well, we talked about it a team. I think having people that inspire you around you, um, your team needs to be, has, a, has, has that coach. You need to have those people around you that inspire you and those people that push you. I think for me, that made a huge change, a huge difference, being completely committed. Um, and that commitment, you know, it, it's, I think that's kind of the hardest part for people, honestly. For me, it was just in that moment, I, I wanted it so bad that, literally every single thing that I felt achieved my goal, I said yes to. And every single thing that did it, I said no. And it was just like a clear line. That's a really- like, Am I going to go do this tonight knowing I have to go to practice? No, I'm going to get the sleep that I need. And so for me, it was just that 100% being committed. And that includes like the diet and all those, those little things that you, it, it, just like all the little things matter. 
So yeah. I'll just bump that into commitment. Um, obviously, you need to be motivated. <laughs> it's going to be hard. That that motivation needs to be there. But I think motivation, we always look at it as like this, what motivates you? And it's like this huge thing, you know. Motivation could be so simple. Motivation could be today. I, I, I'm motivated because I had a, a great conversation with my sister last night. That, like, I just grabbed inspiration and motivation from just little things in my life that keep me going every single day. So for me, I guess those are like the really big things. And honestly, you know, your work ethic that, you know, for me, that kind of goes in with commitment and motivation. But yeah, definitely work ethic has to be there. Delilah gave us a great reminder of the importance of building habits that lead us towards our goals. Sometimes we let our feelings decide what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, but if we put routines and structures in place that force us to act towards our dreams, it becomes just that little bit more likely. Now, of course, Delilah didn't achieve gold medals and world records all by herself. There was a team behind her working with her towards the same goals. Now, the same thing happens in other areas apart from sport like business and especially the military. Being part of an organization with a great culture can lead you to a consistently outstanding performance. It's true that word culture gets thrown around a lot these days, but here we're gonna hear from the best-selling author of The Culture Code, Dan Coyle, about what it really means. And we'll also listen to Mike Irwin, a Lieutenant Colonel in the US Army Reserve, who found out about the importance of great culture as a student and now an assistant professor at West Point Military Academy. It's a set of relationships working toward a goal. That's what it is. And you got a picture, I mean, and you're exactly right that that word gets thrown around way too much. It gets thrown around just like, oh, it's this magic dust that certain people have and certain people don't. That's not true. Um, picture a school of fish moving through a coral reef or picture a, a, a flock of birds in the sky moving through a forest, right, together. They're, they're connected. They're sharing information. They're watching each other and they're, they're navigating obstacles in search of a goal. Culture is functionality, right? Culture is performance. Culture is a set of connected people who can do shit together. That's, that's what culture is. And at the end of the day, it's not about how they feel. It's not that it's warm and fuzzy. It's functional. And when you talk to people in great cultures, that's one of the great mistakes that people make when they think about culture. They think, oh, you know, Pixar's great at culture, San Antonio Spurs, great cultures are where people are happy all the time and where every, everybody agrees with everybody all the time and where you kind of exist on this higher plane where everything's great. And that's actually not true. And if you think about your own experience, everybody's been a part of a great culture. And maybe it was a team, maybe it was a class, maybe it's family. And what you remember is, is that feeling of connection, that feeling of energy, that feeling of selflessness, that feeling of being part of something bigger than you. That's that feeling of being in the flock, mm -hmm. moving towards together. And it's not warm and fuzzy. It's not, it's not like, it, it can feel warm and fuzzy at times, but ultimately when you talk to great operators, especially in the military, um, a lot of people, for instance, will, will leave the SEAL teams and then they'll come back because they can't get that feeling other places or they'll leave a sports team or they'll leave their trading desk on Wall Street and then they'll come back because that's, that's what culture is, right? Yeah. A set of relationships moving toward a goal. Yeah, and, and it's, it's funny that you mentioned that happens in the military. People leave sports teams, they leave great companies, similar, similar effects of, you have that feeling afterwards almost because it's, the, it's almost like, all right, we did that work, it was tough and now I feel good about it. As opposed to feeling good in the moment, I will often say when I might be sitting one-on-one -on -one with a coach or a player, the game, like they want to talk about, I want to feel better, I want to feel more confident, you know, this relationship doesn't feel right. And the very 
throwaway but true line is the game doesn't give a shit how you feel. But the game's going to go on. The opponent's going to punch you in the face. These yeah. things are going to happen. And whether you want them to or not is irrelevant. Whether it feels good or not is irrelevant. It's whether you respond to them and, like you said, navigate through that coral reef or through a sky. Uh, that's, the, that's the thing that makes it, makes it magic. Um, Mike, over to you. Oh, sorry, I've go ahead, people Dan. Say, I've, just just to, to pop back for a sec, I've heard people also describe culture as solving hard problems with people you admire. Like that's another way to describe what you're talking about. You're with people you admire and you're solving hard problems together. And that's a feeling you don't get very often in life. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great feeling. For sure. For sure. Mike, over to you. See if you can beat that very succinct definition. Yeah. I mean, I think about my time at West Point and then, you know, going on out into the army. Um, I'd say at first, you know, the, the, the relationships that were the most important to me to be resilient and to be able to, to push through were my personal relationships with family and friends. Um, but over time, those start to be supplanted by the relationships within the organization where you're spending all of your time. And, you know, for me, I started to see quite a bit of relationships at West Point and then out into the Army grow really strong. And, and they became critical. And especially on a deployment, you know, when you're going through, you know, something challenging like a, you know, a six-month or a 12-month deployment. And I did a 12-month, an eight-month, and a six-month. Um, so I did about, you know, 26, 27 months deployed between 04 and 09 in various units, you know, you, you have to, in theory, I think to really go through, you have to have both of those relationships, but going back to your question specifically about the culture of the organization, you know, and this is why I'm so fascinated by, you know, Dan's work, you know, it first started, you know, with the talent code, you know, um, spent a lot of time thinking about that, um, you know, with my co-founder of, of one of my nonprofits, I started the positivity project. He was an all American lacrosse player at West point. His brother was uh, a lacrosse player and a national champion at Johns Hopkins university, you know, fell in love with the book. Um, but as we dug into, you know, and started to really think about the relevancy of like all the research within the culture code, as I looked with that lens, looking back at the military organizations that I was a part of, it really helped me to better understand, you know, the role of the, the relationships, you know, the sets of living relationships within the organization. Um, and I frankly had, you know, some organizations where the culture was incredible. It was amazing. Uh, and then there were other ones when it wasn't same unit, right. And, and very often, you know, just different leaders and, and the leaders could in some regard, you know, be able to shape or to pivot, you know, um, the organizational culture within a relatively short period of time when you're in combat and you're deployed. Um, it was pretty significant, but yeah, like bottom line is the leaders that prioritize the relationships and that really prioritize, like, like you can't let the person to your left and your right down. That was what was super powerful and built up that strong organizational culture. You were listening to toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review rate, subscribe and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... Your purpose always involves making a difference. People are most energized when they're using their strengths and their gifts and their talents for a bigger purpose beyond themselves. So damn now, it's great to know that someone's got your back, but what if you're in a situation on your own? And that was kind of the case for Freddie Stevenson, a former NFL player who went on to become a published author and now a motivational speaker. He was born and raised in abject poverty, sometimes not even knowing if there was going to be food on the table at night. And yet he was tough enough to hang on to his dreams, fight distractions and grind as hard as he could to make that vision of playing in the NFL come true. Yeah, my definition of toughness is 
I would say it's different because when you fast forward, I know you just asked about my college experience. And I came out of high school as one of the top linebackers. And I remember getting switched to fullback. So early on, I had to be tough. It's like, dang, all this adversity is crazy. Most guys would have transferred, but I continued to fight even when it was, doubt, it was doubts creeping in my mind. But I think part of it is looking in the mirror and understanding, okay, some of these situations I put myself into, and I could blame the world right now, but the situation is what it is. Being able to deal with that reality and understanding the reality is what it is, but now your response is more important than ever. And I think that more than ever is what toughness is to me, being able to be resilient through those dark times and responding to adversity when it comes, because life's a roller coaster. You can be up, and then tomorrow you'll be down. So it's about being able to respond to those dark times. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I was just on a, uh, a call earlier today with a bunch of NBA coaches, and we were talking about coaching, funnily enough. But one of them was talking about their definition of resilience, and they – they said, you know, when we talk to the players, we ask them, what does NBA stand for? And they say, uh, you know, never broke again. And they're joking around. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, but kind of true. Not always true, though. And he said, well, that, here's the thing. It actually stands for next best action because it's not all glamour. You're going to get kicked. You're going to get knocked down. All you can ever do is be like, what am I going to do now? Given the reality that we're in, like, don't wish it was different. It is what it is. And I really, that's, you know, that just resonated with me because you just literally said the same thing coming from a different field. Um, very cool. The The fields of elite sport are obviously related, uh, even though it's a different sport, football and basketball share a, a common bond and they deal with very similar stresses. And it's another thing that connects athletes with military operators and emergency medical personnel and police and firefighters first responders is that you you have to deal with in the game whether it's florida state or the chicago bears uh you have to deal with situations that require an immediate response and require you to bounce back quickly and require you to focus with all sorts of distractions going on so in and amongst that let's just let's just section that off from you being a published author as well but if we're just looking at the in the moment performer of an athlete what for you, what are the one or two key traits that you had as well as toughness, or perhaps that's the one and only thing you're going to highlight, that you think are actually super important to being really good in those pressure situations? Never, number one was never shying away from the moment. The moment was never, never too big. And the people that shine the brightest, you'll see that in them. They treat every game the same, the big games, the small games. There's no moment too big for them. They don't overthink it. They just go out there and play. And when I was able to play at the highest level, it just I just let everything come to me. I, I trusted my training, and I went out there and, and did what I was supposed to do. And you just react to what takes place. And I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. Some people have put themselves in a mind frame where they're worried about what's going to take place, and that's, that's, that leads to mistakes. And when you come out worried about what's going to go wrong, now you're tricking yourself, you're playing, you're playing cautious, and you're going to put yourself in a situation where you're either going to get embarrassed or you're going to get hurt. So just going out there and not allowing the moment to be too big for you, trust your training, and go out there and play. And that, apply, that applies to so many different areas in life. You'll see a lot of people get stressed out, worried about what's next, what's next. 
all I can do is control what takes place today and the effort I put forward to make sure that I'm achieving my goals that I set out today. Yeah, very cool way to look at it. Um, and you're right, a lot of the top performers, you look at their best quarterbacks, you look at the best point guards, centers, whatever it is, and, and that you can see on TV each day, they're the ones who generally will take the big moments and the small moments the same. They're not, they're not up and down along with the roller coaster that is professional sports. You saying that makes it sound like you you did it. Like how if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? I'm 25. 25? Yeah. Wow, what a baby. Uh, but <laughs> at 25, you probably think about it differently than you did when you were 19 at Florida State, right? And so talk us through those times where like either you switch positions from being a linebacker in high school to being a fullback in college to either that moment or a national championship moment or maybe if it's, it's even you you have to go and try out you know I, I know that you you had to go and actually earn your place with the Chicago Bears it wasn't like you got drafted first round and it was all gravy so are there moments in there where even though you know that you should treat every moment the same your body feels different um yeah definitely when I came into college I had to learn how to think that way, to be honest. My eyes were all over the place. It's a new environment. I'm learning a new position. That fullback, I'm not even going to lie to you. I came in not knowing how to, true, how to truly play the position. So I came in like a deer in the headlights all the time, just looking around, worried about making mistakes. And early on, I was making a lot of them. But my talent got me out of some of those tough spots. But it took time for me to develop and just being around a lot of other elite talents that had, had success and that kind of helped me out as well. But to be honest with you, once I got to the NFL, it was already molded into me by that point. So it was just football at that point. I, some people, it comes easier to some than others. By that point, it was, I just had to play. I didn't let any of the outside factors get in my way. I just was focusing and locked in. And I knew that everything I did up to that point the success I had happened for a reason. So I just stayed true to the process and trusted the plan. Now you might be asking, when the shit hits the fan, where do you actually find that strength to keep going, to keep on with your committed action? For John Gordon, who's now a multiple time best-selling author and a world-renowned speaker, real and strong commitment came down to focusing on a purpose that was bigger than his problems so that he could have a positive impact on those around him, whether it's your family, your teammates, or your colleagues. The key, first and foremost, is just to start serving and start to find ways to help others. Your purpose always involves making a difference and serving others. It always goes beyond you. People are most energized when they're using their strengths and their gifts and their talents for a bigger purpose beyond themselves. So you want to basically find ways to help others to use, by using your gifts and strengths for a purpose beyond yourself. So for me, you start living with purpose. You start living on purpose. And the more you start living with purpose and living on purpose and being intentional to do that, the more you actually have this bigger purpose that starts to flow through you. You start to become a conduit. It's like your small why, which is just being on purpose, will lead you to a bigger why. And that was what I did basically early on. Like I knew, finally I realized I was here to make a difference. It wasn't about me. I was a narcissist. I was focused on myself. I was miserable, unhappy. Once I said, I'm going to make my life about others, making a difference and impacting people, right then and there, I just started in small ways. 80 free talks I gave, 
anyone who would listen, anyone who would let me speak, I did it. And so I was just serving. And when I went on my first book tour for the energy bus, we had five people in one city, 10 people in another, 20 people. In another. The, the most we had were hundred people in Des Moines, Iowa. They thought Jeff Gordon was coming. That's why they showed up. <laughs> it was not a great tour. It was not successful. And God was showing me even back then, like, it's not about you, John. It's about serving others. It's about making a difference. Like, is this real? Molding me and shaping me. And that would prepare me for moments like now. Like, well, here we are still dealing with, COVID and so forth. And a lot of people don't have a lot of money to pay me what I'm usually paid to go speak and no one's having events. So I've lost a ton of, of, of revenue in my company and my speaking, but people are reaching out and I'm saying, yes, I'll do the Zoom. Yes, I'll speak to your team. Yes, I'll help you here. And I'm going back to the early days when it was never about the money, which it, it still isn't for me to this day going back to the early days where I'm just basically showing up and doing the work and making a difference. And it feels great because it's about the vision. It's about the mission. It is about the purpose. And I'm going back to that. And I feel like I'm a rookie again, just living it, but I'm a lot better than I used to be, but I'm, and I'm making a greater impact in doing this. So I've done all these zooms, all these, I've been so busy. I mean, I've been slammed just doing so much for so many teams, but you know what? It was, it's been energizing and I've also grown and I'm now prepared for on the other side of this, when things do come back, I'm going to be even better. So that's the thing. You live your purpose and you get better in the process. So you got to remember like why you do what you do. And it's never about the money. It's always about the purpose. So what would you do if money was no object? And then why do you do what you do? So if you're a coach, why do you coach? And you have to understand as a coach, why you're coaching as a leader. Why do you lead? What is your purpose with your team? What do you want to see them do? What is your vision for them? How do you want to help them grow? Be intentional with that. Know that. And that will drive your actions. Yeah. There's two things that spring to mind there. One is the, well, firstly, that you said, you know, that it's about the mission and, and to steal a military adage, it, the mission comes first. Like when, when, all, when the shit is hitting the fan, the Oops. mission comes first. And that's, that clearly applies to um, military combat scenarios whether it's Army, Navy, Air Force, mission comes first. But it applies to our lives as well, our ability to know that when things are getting out of hand, whether it's on a personal front and losing money in your business, whether it is in a relationship, that being connected to the purpose beyond your current discomfort is one of the best predictors of whether you can get through that discomfort. And then the other part, I asked the question about what if someone doesn't know their purpose, you gave a great tip of, well, what, what are you doing for other people? Like make it about other people. And you also mentioned the coach, particularly if you're going to be interviewed for a head coaching position, one of the things they're going to want to know is what's your coaching philosophy. Like if you are forced to choose between veterans or youth, what are you going to choose? And if you're forced to choose between this game style or that game style, what are you going to choose? It's basically like, what are you about? And for those who get stuck on, well, I want to win, it's like, cool, but if you're going in there as a new coach, chances are you're not going to win. Like that coach has been fired for a reason they're probably in the lower half of the standings. So if it's not about winning, well, let's take it another step further. Why do you want to win? Why do you want to coach that player to be better? And, and when you ask the five whys, you get down to, because I want to make him a better human being. Because I want to show the city what's possible. And it becomes about these bigger things that are always about other people. Oh, I love ahead. that. And what's going to cause you to win? Like what will drive the winning that you do? So often we focus on the fruit of the tree. So we look, can look at the outcomes and the numbers and the wins and the losses, or we could focus on the root. 
If you focus on the fruit, ignore the root, the tree dies. But if you invest in that root, and that's your why, that's your culture, that's how we're going to do it, and your philosophy as you're talking about, that's going to drive you to have great fruit. So you got to know how to invest and nurture your root as a leader, as a culture builder that will drive the success that you have as a team. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that root and you don't have that foundation, you're not going to produce great fruit. And so that's why we see the great coaches and the great leaders who have ongoing success because they have a philosophy, they have a purpose, and they really know that it's all about the root and that root will drive the fruit. That's counterculture to the world that just says, I got to focus on the fruit. And I'm always focused on that. And the more you are, then everything else is dying. And then you realize what happens when you lose everything and you realize, oh, why? Well, I was ignoring the root. Mm. Marriage, you got to invest in your marriage. You got to invest in your relationship. Most important thing you can invest in. You got to invest in your kids. They're your root. You got to make time for them. I've had to do that and, and make it a priority. And it's one of the most important things I've ever done now that you're 22 and 20. You got to invest in your emotional and mental and spiritual health. That's your root. You got to focus on that. You got to focus on your cohesiveness as a team. That's your root. If you don't do that as a team, you will not be as strong. Don't take this personal, but I watched the Sixers. And when I was watching the Sixers play the Raptors, I said, they're a good team when they're winning. But if they start to get down, that's when all of a sudden they actually start to fall apart. And I actually told Nick Nurse, I said, if, 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 if you guys go further in the series and you go up and they start to have trouble, I said, I said, you got this. Because if they go up and they feel confident, they're a great front running team. But if they start to have struggles, they're not going to be as, as good. Cause I, I could observe from the outside, they weren't as strong connected and committed as they need to be. And I know that's not have you have nothing to do with that. And you can't even probably talk about that. So don't, but I, I'm just telling you, I observe that from the outside working with all the teams I have, when you work with hundreds and hundreds of teams, you start to see it. And, and sure enough, after the season, you see, okay, well, some of the guys left and blah, blah, blah. They weren't as strong as they needed to be to withstand that. That's the route we're talking about. That's what makes you win a championship when you have that connection and commitment. Because when you see the team that has it, you know that that route is strong and they will wither, they will weather the storm and overcome. Clemson, yeah. Florida State, 2016, I spoke to the team the night before the game. I said, I said, a storm is coming tonight. You got to withstand the storm if you want to win this game. You're going to have a storm. You're going to have to overcome it in order to win. Sure enough, they were down. They had to come back like in the last couple minutes to score. They win the game. They overcame the storm. Same thing happened when they played it in the national championship. Same thing. This was a team that was connected and committed. You didn't, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have won a championship. Yeah, and that's a great – I mean, you, you mentioned a number of teams there, one of, one of whom I work intimately with. But it's a great example of like there are multiple levels of toughness and you can't just have tough individuals within a loosely connected team and a culture that's only just started. If you run up against – I mean, maybe it wins, but if you run up against a really solid team of veteran players that are connected, it's, it's going to be much tougher than you want it to be. That's right. the thing. When you, when, you, when you have a committed, connected team going up an, against another team, which one is more committed? Which one is more connected? And then also talent plays a part of it. But it could, it could overcome a lot of teams. Alabama's talent could overcome a lot of teams. But when they come up against a team like Clemson that has a lot of talent just like them and the connection and the commitment, then it's too much. We watched, we watched um, LSU win the championship this year in college. And they had, a, they had more talent than Clemson, and they were definitely a connected and committed team 
with a great coach that did a great job that year and a great leadership and the quarterback Joe Burrow. So when you saw that, that was a hard team to beat because of all the things and all the characteristics they had. So culture, leadership, building that connected team, and then that individual mindset of, of mental toughness of each person who then wants to serve each other and, and be there for each other and fight for each other. That's when you get something special. Great stuff there from John Gordon. Now, before we end this episode, it's worth noting that the majority of all the excerpts we've listened to are from the moment in the show where I asked the guests what toughness meant to them. And so it's striking to me the, the correlation or the link between toughness and action, particularly for elite performers. You can be the most unshakable person in the world. You can control your feelings. But if you're not going to commit to your actions, do things with a strong purpose, you're likely to fail. When things get tough, especially, think about the things that matter to you most and you do everything that you can to get one step closer to them, even if it's not ideal. Thanks for listening to all these special episodes. Looking forward to season two. Until then, stay tough. So what is it got to be so damn tough?